Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star as it rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all chief priests and scribes of the people and asked him, Where is Christ would be born? In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him. Because this is what was written in the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Because out, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact times the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's so good when we get a chance to have actual children engage in the scriptures. It's really good that uh, it's, we can, and there's nothing wrong with having like incredible times for Christmas concerts and plays, and there's a place for that, and a wonderful thing, but my heart really gets full when we see children engaging the scriptures and engaging the, the, the story. And the reason why I think that's important is when we come to Christmas time, there's a phrase that we'll use to describe Christmas. We often will talk about the magic of Christmas. Right? You use this word, the, the magic of Christmas. What is magical about December 25th. I mean, honestly, as far as a day goes, there actually is nothing special about December 25th in and of itself. The day itself, if anything, the day that has had, that has had the most significance over centuries is actually December 21st because of it being the winter solstice and there's all these astrological meanings for that kind of a day. So, so people all over the world would have different days to celebrate. The 25th really on its own, there was nothing special about it. There was no astronomical uh, significance. There's nothing about the sun or the moon or the stars that seem to put Christmas Eve or Christmas as a big deal on the calendar. As a matter of fact, the reason why we celebrate Christmas on the 25th is uh, because of the Emperor Julius, who declared the 25th as the day that we would celebrate, right? But ultimately, the day is not what it's, the day itself is not what brings it significance. It's the story behind the day that brings it significance. We could have celebrated, matter of fact, there are peoples all over the world that celebrate Christmas on different days. Some cultures celebrate it on December 6th, some uh, celebrate it in, in January. It's not about the actual day that brings the spe makes it special or makes it significant. It's the story. And so uh, understanding kind of why the story matters and these details within the story, that's the only way to make it what I'm going to define later as magical. Now, for some of us, depending on how we grew up, using the word magic 
automatically means bad or devil and evil and all of that. We're going to talk about that too. Because there's a way in which even as Christians understanding uh, what, this, what this means, what this story means, it really can be looked at as magical. It can be looked at as something incredible and something that is beyond understanding outside of God's hand. Here's the thing I want to get across, though. In thinking about this story and thinking about Christmas as a whole, the question you have to ask yourself, is Christmas my story or is it God's story? Is this holiday season about me, about how I feel, about what I'm dealing with, all things that are fine, by, by the way, is it primarily about my story, or is it ultimately about God's story? And my story gets subsumed into that, but, but is it ultimately about his, or is it about, is it about mine? And this is the case that we see in this story that we're seeing here, right? This case that we, when we look at this man, Herod, and we look at the, how he engages this story and about whom this story really is. is you, you can see for him, the story is about Herod. For him, the story is about what is this going to mean for me? Now, that's a good question. We, we've said this the last two weeks, right? Christmas, there's no better time. It should happen all year round, but there's no better time than Christmas to say, who is Jesus? What do I do with his claims? Who is Jesus? What do I do with his claims? Christmas doesn't have the significance that's intended if we don't answer those two questions. Who is Jesus and what do I do with his claims? That's going to answer the question, actually, for whether or not Christmas is about your story or about his. Who is Jesus? What do I do with his claims? So look at here. You look at these first six verses uh, in Matthew chapter 2, and you see something really interesting about him. Now, first, you have to understand who Herod was. If you wanted a nickname for him, he would be kind of the paranoid king. This was someone who was so worried about losing his power, losing his political position. He was so worried about losing his position that he basically, uh, he, he never was born kind of ethnically Jewish. He was an Edomite. He converted quasi, converted over in order to be able to have a position of power under the Roman government. The Roman government said, okay, the, these, these, the Jewish folks, they don't really have a real nation. They don't really have a real king. We'll set you up as the king of the Jews. Since you kind of fall in line with what we want, we'll give you that kind of power. So for him, he just said, you know, if it means that I can just convert over into this kind of uh, uh, on the surface kind of religious world, I'll convert if it means that I'll get power. Now listen, this shouldn't be foreign because within our own political spheres, leaders have always done this. If I want to be able to get power, uh, get a certain number of voters in a certain way, I can adopt a religious position in order to then be able to maintain power. And so he, this is what leaders have done forever. So, so he does this. Now all of a sudden you've got this man here, they called him Herod the Great. And King Herod is in position, and the Romans have, have installed him there. He's not really spiritually Jewish at all, but he's just kind of playing the part. And then he does what is often the case with our own hearts. If I'm worried about losing power, I'm going to get antagonistic, won't I? If I think that I have a certain position, and I think that maybe my position is going to be threatened, then I begin, I begin to, to become a little antagonistic or even more. And so Herod hears some things and goes, wait, wait a minute, there's another king? that might come, that threatens my power. So, so, so what does he do? 
He basically enlists the help of foreigners to find out about the person that could be his political opponent. I promise I'm not picking on nobody. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. This is not new. Just telling you that if it's about your story versus if it's about God's story, you don't play any of those games. But if it's about your story and your power and your platform, you'll play all of those games. And so this is who Herod is. In order to understand, this is somebody who was like, I'm going to do whatever I have to do. I will make exchanges with these groups, this group over here, in order to be able to get the power that I need or to maintain or to protect the power that I have. It's never been about God's story. It's always been about Herod. And so he's so worried about power that could be taken away from him. At one point, this was an interesting thing I looked at historically. Herod's, this is so interesting. At one point, Herod's mother-in-law convinced the famous Cleopatra and Mark Anthony to try and, 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 and remove him from power, remove kind of the leader that was there uh, from power. He'd actually convinced them to hatch this plan. And as a result, eventually he had his wife and two sons killed because of what he viewed as disloyalty. This is the kind of man this was. I'm so worried about losing my power, I'll even have family members taken out. Anything that challenged his kingship had to be removed without hesitation. So let that be the backdrop. This is historically, right, contextually what we're looking at here. This isn't just another fun little fictitious figure that's there. There's history behind this, and it matters. Because now, given this, this paranoid king that is focused on holding on to power, all of a sudden, these, these men show up known as magi. These men show up uh, with these incredible abilities and some, some really deep knowledge, and they've got these, this wisdom there. They come on the scene. They come, from, uh, they come from the east, and we'll talk about who they are in a minute. But here's what they're talking about. They're talking about a king of the Jews. They're saying, hey, we're here to see the king of the Jews. And of course, Herod is going, ain't no other king but me. And if there is another king, I'll make sure he won't be here long. So he hears this news from them, and it becomes trouble. And so now he's, he's looking, here's, here's what's really interesting. Think about that question again. Is it your story, or is it his story? If your life is primarily your story, Jesus will be a threat to you. If your life is primarily your story, we're not saying that it's not a part of your story. We're not saying it's not important. But if it's primarily your story, then you get to dictate how, it's, how it plays out. And whenever Jesus says something counter to the way you think your story should play out, he will be an enemy to you. This is precisely where Herod finds himself. Because now there's, a, there's something that's challenging the story he's been writing for himself. Y'all, this is how we are. I mean, even if we're not in this huge, powerful position, when you live your life a certain kind of way and you think that you've got your mindset the way it needs to be, the way you feel is good enough, then whenever something, whenever something shows, Jesus says, hey, what you're feeling right now, that's not how I feel. You get real defensive. That's actually what discipleship is, right? Hey, this is all the ways in which my heart is not in line with where Jesus is. And so now, you know, when, when, when somebody begins to point out, hey, I get why you might feel like this. But your feelings aren't an authority here. Jesus is. And so what you're feeling right here isn't really in line with what Jesus feels and what he cares about. And then immediately, on the, on deep down, it's like, you know what? I don't know if I really want to mess with that part of who Jesus is. This is where Herod <laughs> finds himself. He sees Jesus as a threat. 
See, we like Jesus being a, a friend. We like him being a brother. We like him being a compassionate listener. And he's all those things. But he's more to that. Jesus becomes a threat to our independence. There's a sense in which I want to be independent of some things, and Jesus actually becomes a threat to that. He's a threat to the idea that we are kings and queens of our own lives. And that's not a comfortable feeling. So we have a problem with this Jesus. Herod has a problem with this Jesus. Why? Because he's one that claims absolute sovereign lordship over all creation, and he demands that they submit their wills to his will. So, you know, you hear we talk about this a lot. It's not enough to look at Jesus as a savior if we won't look to him as Lord. And so Herod refuses to see him either way. And you think about who we are and how we function. A lot of times we look at our story, maybe even our own kingdoms we've established for ourselves, our own lives, and we think we have every right to determine what's good for us. We think we have every right to determine how our relationship should work, or we determine ultimately what's going to be right for us and what's going to be wrong for us. We don't have a problem paying respect to Jesus, but often it's a very different Jesus. We don't necessarily want the Jesus that threatens our personal kingdom. We want a Jesus that's a good teacher, a good man with exemplary morals and a great life and shows us how to care about each other and do good. We don't always have a tolerance for a Jesus that's going to take his rightful place on the throne of our hearts. So if I have to do a job that involves me being dishonest in order to do my job well, I don't want a Jesus that's going to challenge that. If I want a relationship that makes me happy but it displeases God, I don't want a Jesus that would challenge that. If I want to be uh, selfish and not generous with my money and my time with my church and my community, I don't want a Jesus that's going to challenge that. If I want to have the comfort of food, sex, alcohol, even if it means they're abused or misused, I don't want a Jesus that will challenge that. Because Jesus is a threat to what I define as my story. The irony is that in all these cases, so often I'm so focused on maintaining my freedom that I never truly experience freedom. Because what I call freedom is actually a form of slavery for me. Because I keep thinking that what I'm going to get out of that is going to fully satisfy, and it doesn't. So I just keep pursuing, and I keep grabbing, and I keep squeezing and hoping that eventually that last drop will be the most satisfying. And it isn't. I become more enslaved to these sins, and I never know true freedom that comes from the Jesus who came, the Jesus who showed up. That's why you see one of the Christmas hymns that says, Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. It's the most beautiful part of that line because you ultimately see, man, I, when we use these phrases, the phrases like born again, there's a way in which I was born writing my own story. I need to be reborn into a new story. That's ultimately what Jesus came to do. And so this is all a huge threat to someone like Herod because Herod is like us. He didn't want to share his throne. He didn't want to share his power. And he for sure didn't want to give it up. So if you think your life is your story, Jesus is going to be a threat to you. And if Jesus is a threat to you, you'll never truly worship him. Now, that's like one of the biggest things here. If Jesus is still a threat to us, then this whole singing words on Sunday isn't real worship. 
us just having time, even reading, we'll read scripture, we'll quote scripture, and we'll pray. If Jesus is still a threat to us in that way, we're not fully worshiping. Side note, if you notice in verse 4, again in verse 4 it says, So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them whether Christ would be born. Uh, you see this, this was, uh, they, they, it's interesting how they respond to him, right? Because the way they respond to him, uh, they kind of respond to him in, in, in difference, right? Because we saw this, Herod wasn't, he wasn't Jewish, he was appointed by the Romans in this position. Uh, and so even the Jewish leaders aren't even threatened at first. They're just kind of like, they see Herod, and he asks where, they're, where, they're, where, uh, where the king's going to be born, and they just say, in Bethlehem of Judea. They, they don't have any problem. They don't think that there's a real threat at the time. They're not really noticing kind of what dangerous things are, are present at this time. And it's some, some people wonder if uh, their indifference was really because they were, they were kind of interested more in, hey, if we can continue to get political capital here, we're okay. Because <coughs> they likely weren't looking for Jesus either. So there's an indifference there, and, and Herod is kind of living in that and taking advantage of that. Because again, much like us, if we find a leader that gives us enough political expediency we won't care about the heart of God. We just care about what position we get with the leader that we want. And so they, these leaders are just kind of like, yeah, what do you need? You want to know where this, this uh, future Messiah is going to be born? We'll, we'll tell you. But eventually, Jesus becomes unavoidable. In this story, you see these Jewish leaders who uh, eventually, these indifferent leaders would be the same leaders that would threaten his very life 30 years later. But they're indifferent right now. And if you look at the, uh, verses 7 and 8, after they've explained everything to him, Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Now this is, this is a, a great picture of fake allegiance. This is one of the most dangerous things when it comes to power, especially. If I need, if I want to be able to maintain a certain amount of power or even a certain amount of votes, I will fake allegiance to whatever you deem to be God. And this is, this is exactly what Herod's, he's not dumb. He's smart. He's like, listen, if I want to maintain this power and I want to maintain the will of the people behind me, I need to fake allegiance. Even if nothing in my heart or nothing in my behavior looks like a believer. Yes. Yes. I will still say enough to get you to think that I'm aligned with you. That's right. And here's what's scary about that. When I'm so much about faking allegiance, you won't even care about testing whether or not those things are true in my character. Because right. you're so happy for the political expediency it gives you. Mm -hmm. yes. This is where this is where I'm about here, y'all. Just here. <laughs> but just to know that this mentality and this sin struggle is nothing new. This isn't, this, this isn't something that should be formed. We should be quick. Christians should be the first to recognize that, not the last. We should be the first to be able to go, wait a minute, that looks like fake allegiance. There we go. And if you're faking allegiance and you're putting a mask on, what are you hiding? Yes. And if you're putting a mask on, what are you trying to, what power are you trying to control? What are you afraid of losing? That should be what mature believers think when any leader functions like this. But that wasn't the case. And this is what's scary. If Jesus is nothing but a threat to you, then you will fake allegiance to him in order to mask your own agenda. 
If he's not truly, if it's not truly about his story, it's so easy to just fake allegiance. It's so easy to, to play church. It's so easy to act like, yep, we're all on the same team when there's really another agenda that's there. So it's easy to, to play church. Herod acted like he wanted to worship Jesus, like he wanted to worship the Christ so that he could find out Christ's weak spot and then exploit it. That's actually what like manipulative leadership looks like. I act like I'm on the same page with you. In order to find out where all the weaknesses and the soft spots are, then I get to exploit it. In this case, he was just a baby. So finding out where Jesus was would make it easy to kill him and eliminate any competition. So what does he do? He says, well, he realizes that as far as the wise men, we're going to look at them now, as far as they came, depending on the time that they saw the star, it likely would have been about two years before they actually got here. That's the reason why he issued this edict. All children two years and below be killed because he knew that it would have taken about two, two years roughly for those wise men to get there. By the way, this is my fun little time to get on a quick soapbox about your little nativity scenes. Listen, they're beautiful. I love them. I have one. But then, listen, if you have a nativity scene with, with baby Jesus in the manger and the wise men there, it's just not accurate. That's all I'm saying. Like, they weren't there yet. They didn't get there until he was about two. He was like toddling and walking around and... Just, I mean, it, it, it's not sinful. It's not bad. Just want you to, yes, it's okay. Have fun, grace and peace to you. I'm going to pray for accuracy. Anyway, um, <laughs> but it is it's interesting when you look at these details on why they matter, right? Because it helps us understand contextually what's happening, right? So these wise men who come from afar, they get there, and by the time they get there, Herod realizes, oh, man, if you saw the star before you came here and you're here now, the baby's probably about two years old. Let me issue something so that I can make sure I snuff out any possible threat to my throne. And so he's so willing. You realize that even when you claim allegiance to something, you don't care who you crush in the process to hold on to your power. You actually don't. When you, the moment you get to a place where you're like, this is the most important thing to me, then other image bearers don't matter anymore. So you can fake allegiance and say, I care about this issue over here, but at the same time, I can put tens of thousands of children in cages over here because I can say I, I, I pledge allegiance over here, but being thoroughly and holistically pro-life over here, not so much. Mm, say it. That's actually something that as Christians we should care about. We should say, wait, like, I don't care what side of the political aisle. If someone's talking, I want them to be holistically about it all. But that wasn't here. Herod, Herod, can you imagine? Can, like, what must the, the Jewish followers there have thought when they're like, our king has not issued a rule that says kill all of the babies two years and below? They have like, how, how is this? It's not even, it's, I mean, this is something like he's commanding the slaughter of commanding them. How is that even possible? How, how can this man be claiming to, 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 to have allegiance to to, to Yahweh, to Jehovah. How is it possible? Oh, because like anything else, he can pick and choose which parts of God's heart to hold up in order to protect his own power. This is where Herod was. And so, so in, in many ways, how do we do this, right? What does it mean to, like he did there, he, he, he waited and acted like he cared about an issue, looked for soft spots, and then began to exploit it. How do we do that? We, we look for soft spots in, in Christianity or in our churches in order to render Christ and his claims irrelevant or untrue. Maybe we've been hurt legitimately. 
We've had real damage. We've had things happen in church that have been so sometimes unspeakable things. And so, and so, and so doing, I'm like, I've been hurt and I've been so frustrated. I'm so angry. I'm now going to look for all the ways here now to be able to say, I'm going to render the claims of Christ mute because of the damage that happened here. And that's really, that's really dangerous because it doesn't mean that the damage isn't true and it doesn't mean it needs to be accounted for. But that has nothing to do with whether or not the claims of Jesus are true. Look, there's no question. We all know this, even in the church. The church is just a bunch of crooked sticks being used to draw straight lines. There's just a lot of brokenness. And it needs to be called out. It ought not ever be overlooked. But there's a lot of brokenness there. And if anybody claims to truly be a Christian, the first thing you learn is the brokenness of mankind. So why would you ever be shocked when you're hurt? It doesn't mean it feels good. It doesn't mean that, that we look forward to it. We don't get up in the morning doing ankle kicks because I can't wait to be hurt today. But at the same time, it does say a lot about maybe the weakness in our theology. If the moment I'm hurt, and that's why I don't mess with church no more. That's just bad logic. I get it because I feel it sometimes and I'm a pastor. I get it. But again, this is where like our, our, our reasoning and really understanding, like, is that a reasonable way to engage real brokenness. Or maybe I'm like, man, this is more evidence that what this Bible says about the fallenness of mankind is very true. It's very accurate. This is, this is kind of what it looks like. So the moment our hearts, if the story's about me and I'm hurt, then I'm going to use that pain in a way to create my own little platform or my own little cocoon and my own little womb in which I can now grow into some unhealthy practices and some unhealthy ways of thinking. And maybe even some unhealthy views of who God is. Now, this isn't to say that we shouldn't care about, like we said, the hypocrisy in the church. Because, man, it's, it's there. And we have to deal with it swiftly and without compromise. But what we're saying is we don't use that as a trump card to excuse our sin. We don't. It's painful and it's heartbreaking. And we engage it, but we don't exploit it. So keep, keep this up, too, and remember this. If you are prone to use other sin as an excuse to ignore your own, you're faking allegiance. If you're prone to, to, to overlook your own stuff, and this, is, this happens all the time. This is kind of like the, the doctrine of whataboutism. Somebody calls you out about a thing or calls an issue out, and instead of dealing with the issue, well, what about this over here? Well, I have a hard time uh, being called out about this when nobody called her out about this and nobody said anything to him about that. That's actually faking allegiance at that point. Because if you're truly going, I want to be able to please God, I want to be able to have his heart on issues, then if you bring something to my attention and says, this is not in line with where God is, it should break me. Regardless of the messenger, it should break me. If I have a hard time being broken over my sin and I've created excuses for why I don't need to be broken, I'm faking allegiance. I'm faking allegiance. I'm trying to protect something else. And so you see, uh, this, this spirit that Herod has is much like ours. We don't always want to be challenged by Christ. So we'd rather focus on how others avoid being challenged by Christ. Do you get that? It's like, man, I, I, I don't want to have to deal with my stuff, so I'd much rather look at all the ways that they're not being challenged enough. Well, you know, they really haven't been growing that way. And, you know, it's weird... It, you can almost mistake pointing out other people's lack of holiness as your own holiness. 
And it's actually not any of that, right? Like, I, I now feel like I've done some kind of spiritual exercise by pointing out all the ways that other people have just not been spiritually where they need to be. That actually isn't worship at all. And there's really no growth in you for that. So, I'll get off because I don't want to step on everybody's toes. But I'm going to say, whose story is it? Is it Jesus' story or is it yours? Now, look at these magi for a minute, these wise men from the East. A couple of things to know. Number one, how many wise men were there? We don't know. Three. We don't know. Mm. I love this. So, traditionally, we've always been told there's three wise men, right? Biblically, that's just not true. You won't see in the Bible any number. The reason why traditionally people have said there are three wise men is because there are three gifts. And because there's three gifts, we assume there's three people bringing the gifts. Now, there's a lot of reasons to actually throw that out, this idea that there's three wise men. Number one, we know that they were coming from the east, likely modern-day Iran, Persia, the east. They actually refer to that area as the Orient. So you'll see, like, we three kings of Orient are. They've even given them names, which just came out of nowhere. Like, nobody really knew. It's just crazy, like, nut-nucking them. Like, that's not their names, I promise. But, but what you do see is you see this likely, there's good reason to believe that there, was a car- there were caravans of them. Why? Because they were coming from uh, Iran. They were coming across the desert. It would be a suicide mission if it's just two or three people traveling for two years because people are robbing and waiting to steal all the time. So you would come strapped. You would have a group of folks. With, I'm just saying, like, you know, you're not, you, 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 would de- you believed in your Middle Eastern Second Amendment rights. Like, you were like, yo, I need to make sure I got some peace with me. So, so, so honestly, what you, what you would have seen is, like, possibly a caravan of folks going. So not three. Uh, I get it. Our nativity scenes, we don't have room for caravans. So that's okay. They can, they can represent it. <laughs> But here's what we know. We know for sure that these men were coming. They were coming and that somehow, through their knowledge, they knew that somebody really important uh, was being born. I wish we had a lot of time to talk about them because they're very interesting and they're very important to the story. Here's what we know for, for sure. The Greek word that's used here, this word magoi, magi, it's plural. It means multiple kind of what we would call magicians. Magus was the singular. Magi, magi was the plural. There are these folks, and this word is used centuries and centuries and centuries because these people were well-known all throughout ancient Middle East. People knew there was this group of folks that had, and it's, it's hard to understand everything that they knew, but they basically had these, these folks that understood the stars, how to be able to predict when certain things would happen in the sky, and it was legitimate knowledge that they would have. Got to remember, like, when we think about magic now, we just think about seances and spirits and all that stuff. That wasn't always what that word applied to. It just simply meant if you, before you had actual people who had been trained as chemists, you had people called alchemists who understood uh, metals and understood chemicals and found ways, and there would be things that would be mixed in as well, but they were also known as the magicians. The people who could read the stars, the people who could understand cycles of the, of, of the earth and all that, the people who could start to kind of tell weather patterns, they were known as magicians. So these really were the closest thing we had. Yes, there, were, there was a range of things that people would do. And some of it, crazy stuff, sure. But they were legitimate. These were kind of like the closest thing you had to like trained scientists on a level. So you've got these, uh, these magicians, these Babylonian, Persian kind of religious priests as well from the East, likely Iran. 
And scripture doesn't give us a ton of details, again, about how many of them uh, there were. We just know that there weren't three. <laughs> Somehow, these magician astrologer folks, they had studied the stars and then knew some of the scriptures in order to know that this child was coming. That's where the, that really should be the question we ask. How in the world would these non-Jewish men, these, these folks from the, the Orient as they knew it, who basically, by the way, the, the, the name for the Magi, the Magi, it actually comes from this Latin word, and, and ultimately it's because they believed that they were rooted in this religion known as Zoroastrianism. So if you've ever studied Maybe you have, maybe you have. It's kind of a Zoroaster was kind of this, this person that was kind of revered as God in the ancient Middle East. And if you look back, maybe even 15, 15, 18, 1900 years, you can even still see inscriptions uh, about kind of this Zoroastrian view of religion. And so a lot of folks believe that these folks were kind of followers of this kind of sect of people who believed in these, this different aspect of the gods, this idea of Zoroaster, but also had all of this scientific knowledge at the same time. We get all spooked out with this stuff, and we shouldn't, because all truth is God's truth. So if it's true, whether or not people realize who the author of that truth is, right? The, the idea that, that you didn't take a Christian to, to understand algebra. Some of y'all think it's demonic anyway, because you don't like that. But we didn't take a Christian to be able to, to do that, right? Take a Christian to be able to find calculus. All truth is God's truth. And so these folks were kind of knowing certain things. How would they know, though, about the Messiah? See, this is where I want to get to like our story versus God's story. How would they know that there's a Messiah coming? What would make them, right? What would give them uh, this, this desire that to, to, to read the scriptures, these Hebrew scriptures from this seemingly smaller sect of people? What would make these folks who likely are Zoroastrians, why would they do this? Why would they read this? This is when it gets really interesting. Because what we see, you almost have to look back 600 years before this event that gives us a clue. We're going to go back to the book of Daniel. Do you remember what happened to Daniel? Do you remember what happened when all of that stuff started kind of playing out? Daniel, he, he, he's uh, kidnapped and, and used to, to be this incredibly well-educated uh, uh, Jewish boy that grows up uh, in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, earns a lot of favor, goes through a bunch of stuff, but ends up becoming this, this well-respected leader, interpreting dreams. Okay, we know that part of the story. This is why you don't separate these stories, because these stories matter. This isn't just a once upon a time in a land far away. This is actually a story that matters. You're going to see how God's story is all connected. You see, when you look back at this, you remember Daniel, the famous three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and the bad Negro. Yes, I call him that. That's just my <laughs> nickname because I like representation. So, uh, <laughs> and and they, were, they were all given top, this top Babylonian education. They were given this incredible wisdom. They were learned men. And they learned a lot, including astrology. And they were taught and trained to be magi. These wise men that are referred to way back in Daniel, referred to as the wise men. These men were magi. This is not a coincidence. Here they are. If you, you, like we said before, Nebuchadnezzar has this bad dream, couldn't understand it. He wanted his highest-ranking magi to tell him the dream, to prove that they weren't frauds, and to interpret it, and they couldn't do it. Remember that? 
Because he already had a group of men that were known as their wise men, these magi. They couldn't do it. Then Daniel comes on the scene, and he's able to do it. He's successful. Nebuchadnezzar promoted him. And you see in chapter 4 of Daniel, he's called the chief of magicians. That language matters, y'all. That language matters. Because it's not just a coincidence that all of a sudden, these 600 years later, these magicians kind of know. Why would they know? Why would the Magi have any idea about who this Messiah is going to be or where he's going to be? How, what, what were they? they you always think about this. When Daniel took over as the leader of the Magi, you know what his responsibility was? Hey, how are we going to train these guys? What are we going to teach them? What are we going to have them read? What are, what are, what are we going to test them on? What do we want to make sure that they, that they know? You might even have Magi who happen to be believers in Daniel's kind of crew of wise men who knew and understood. It's probably not a coincidence at all that Daniel would ensure that these wise folks who knew all this other stuff knew the prophecies concerning the God of the universe. See, this is what's beautiful about this. What's beautiful about this, and really this is where the real magic, this mystic kind of secret unknown piece, because there is a mysticism that sometimes we want to push away, but there's a beauty in the unknown. There's a wonder in the unknown. There's a wonder in that, and we need to be able to embrace that. But there's something really magical about this. What's magical is this. You think back, we just talked about something that was 600 years before this event, right? So 2,600 years from now, but there's something to be said about the fact that God sovereignly uses past and present to bring you to himself. There's something magical about, if you don't get this about Christmas, it's not just the gifts of all wonderful stuff and wonderful food and all that stuff, but, but understanding more deeply, my goodness, the, the, the tears and the joy, the pain and the laughter, every single thing, past and present, God has sovereignly used to bring himself to us and to draw us to himself. That's what the whole story of the Bible shows us. That is, it doesn't mean it always feels good. It doesn't mean that, it, that, that we're always thrilled with the way some of these things happen. I'm sure Daniel would have loved to not be in a furnace. I'm sure he would have loved not to be around a bunch of lions trying to come for him. I'm a Lions fan. Lions have never scared anybody, but still. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just something. Anytime you read these stories, you start seeing, my goodness, like, these magi in the nativity story, they very well may have been influenced by the very training that Daniel created and the God Daniel served centuries before. And they realized that their stories were not theirs. They knew they were connected to a larger story. Do you know this Christmas that your life is connected to a larger story? Do you know this Christmas that even some of the pain you might feel this holiday is still connected to a larger story? Do you know that even the joy you might be experiencing and the wonderful things that are happening is still connected to a larger story? Is it your story or is it his story? These magi in the story, they know, they know whose story it is. They're willing to put their lives on the line because of it. They realize it's his story. Somehow they know and believe it's always been his story. And the interesting thing is that God invites us into this story. That's the real magic of Christmas. Everything in your past and present is being sovereignly used to bring you to Jesus and to bring Jesus to you. When you realize that your story is not your own, four things are going to happen. 
once you get to a place, when we get to a place, and maybe it's kind of a, a regular reminding ourselves, it is a regular reminder of ourselves, it's like, okay, this is not my story, it's his. It's not my story, it's his. Yesterday I was able to remember that, today I wasn't. It's not my story, it's his. Hey, the types of people that I have in my life, I need them to remind me, it's not my story, it's his. When I'm going to bring uh, 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 encouragement to other folks, I'm with you, I mourn with you, I rejoice with you, just keep, let's remember, it's not your story, it's his. That's, that's kind of the cycle that we're in, right? Four things happen when we do this. The first thing that's going to happen, you will become impatiently determined. You will be impatiently determined. Now, that might sound unchristlike, right? You're supposed to be patient, you're supposed to wait and all that. And in most cases, you're right, but think about this. The Magi, these wise men, they knew the timeline. They could have waited until Jesus grew up to meet him and worship him. They could have waited, right? They actually could have been like, you know, it's going to be kind of crazy. It's going to be a lot. Let's just wait until he comes on the scene because if, if he really is who people say that he is, God will keep him and protect him so then we can get there and maybe we won't deal with some uh, reprisal. It's not what they do. They could have waited. They knew that if he really was the king they were looking for, they would hear about him eventually. But they didn't wait. They could not wait for that. They wanted to see him ASAP. There's something about, Lord, I know that this is your story, and so I, whatever I have to do to continue to, to pursue you, whatever I have to do to be where you are, I am impatiently pursuing. It's the one time where it's okay to be impatient. And so you, you, when, you, when you look at this, you look at these folks, and they're like, we're going to go on a long journey at huge personal cost to us in order to see him. Very different from the paranoid anger of Herod and the indifference of those Jewish scribes and Pharisees. So first is being impatiently determined. The next three things are displayed in the three gifts given to Jesus after his birth. When you realize that your story isn't yours, but it's a part of God's story, you begin to worship Christ as king, as God, and as savior. This is what it's going to look like. When you truly get to a place, when we are getting to a place where we're like, I see him as the, he is the author of my story. It is his story. I'm just nested into that. The moment that happens, you see him as, uh, as, as, as king, as God, as savior. Look at these three gifts. And these aren't the normal gifts you give to a baby, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These aren't random gifts. Gold, that's usually what you would present to a king. When you were traveling from another country or another region and you wanted to be able to show reverence and respect and show this is, I respect your throne and I respect who you are and I bring nothing but reverence to you, the kind of gift you would bring is a, is a set of, of, of gold. You'd have a certain amount of gold you'd give to a king. The Magi are acknowledging Jesus as their king. He is their ruler. His story wins out. His precepts, his decrees, they take precedence. It's not, it's not just a random gift here. And then frankincense. Frankincense is uh, this kind of incense that people would burn. A lot of times in the temple, you would burn in order to be able to show worship. This is a part of the, some of the rituals, the worship rituals that would happen. So they're bringing uh, frankincense to, to, to be burned as a pleasant offering to God. Again, it's a sign of worship. So like you are king, we also are coming to worship you as God. <coughs> And then you have myrrh, this, this kind of like anointing spice when you had to anoint, like you would like rub on. And, and you would often use this to even cover like bodies that have started to die and you wanted to be not for the smell, not to overpower. 
And so you would rub uh, this stuff in. You would use sometimes to anoint a new king, but more often than not to prepare a body for burial. A lot of scholars think the Magi are acknowledging the sacrifice that this baby's going to make. This is why I believe that these Magi were believers. Because it just, it makes no sense to bring almost like embalming fluid to a baby that's just been born. Unless you know that this is going to be a savior that came to die. These Magi were impatiently determined to see their king to see their God, to see their Savior. You see, this is what it looks like when your life is not yours. This is what it looks like when your story is not yours. This is what it looks like. You start to recognize that you don't make the rules for your life. Christ is king and he's on the throne, which means he deserves our allegiance and our obedience. Then you recognize that not only is Christ the ruler of your heart, but he's also the creator of your heart. He's God. He demands not only our obedience, but our worship, and finally, this is vitally important to the first two. You recognize that Christ is our Savior. He came, out of, he, he came to be more than to be our friend. He is our friend. But he came to be more than that. He came to be more than uh, our confidant. He's definitely that. But he came to be more than that. He actually came to die for us. He was born to be brutally beaten and murdered in our place so that we can be empowered to obey and to worship him. Is that, that, that's something that's so easy to forget around the Christmas season because what we love is we love rejoicing, we don't love mourning. We, especially here in this country, we don't have a, a good healthy theology of mourning. Before, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, we hold those two together. We do both. These three kings are similar in many ways. To something, I think several years ago, we, we looked at Mary's song, The Magnificat, and we highlighted some things there. God, uh, in, her, in her song that she wrote, or the song that she sang, that God is a mighty king, holy, deserving of worship, merciful, dying in our place, so that we don't have to face the shame and misery of sin and death. Think about this. As we close, these Gentile men, these, these men that are not Jewish, that, that you would not think would know these scriptures, from far away, they respond with worship. So my question is, who is Jesus? What do you do with his claims? How are you responding to him this Christmas? Whose story is it? And I'm asking this even as we get into like, I'm not talking about just the, the, the easy, seemingly innocuous parts of our life that maybe can be kind of rough, but, but I can cast that to the side. I'm talking deep areas where likely he's a friend but he's likely not Savior, he's likely not Lord, maybe. Maybe that's the question. Where is Jesus not Lord in your heart this Christmas? Where is Jesus not Lord in your heart this Christmas? Because any place where he's not Lord, it's your story. And it's not his. So how do we respond? Is Jesus really king? Does he deserve our worship? And not just on Sunday when we sing, but is he, is he true king in our lifestyle? Do we submit to him in the way that we live, in the way we love each other, the way we engage each other? Is he truly our king in the way that we avoid each other? Is he truly our king in the way that we find ways to not see and hear each other? Does he deserve your worship? 
None of those are possible if he's not our savior. If he's just more the, uh, of a cute baby or a nice guy that did some really selfless things, then he'll eventually become a threat to your throne and not the king of it. He'll be a guy in your life, not the God of your life. He was born to save us from our false thrones and our false gods. So how do we respond? Let's pray. Father, as we think through what is truly magical about this time, this day that we have chosen to celebrate, we realize that there's nothing mystical about this day. There's uh, likely the, the events of your birth probably didn't happen at all around this time. And yet, God, that doesn't change anything about the reason that we celebrate. So, God, I pray, first of all, that you would uh, uh, disabuse us of any areas that we have kind of placed unworthy significance on a day and not enough significance on your person, on your life, on your spirit and what you've done and what you're doing. God, I pray that you would allow us to make the big things, the main things, keep them the big priority. Father, I think that, I pray that you would show us what truly is magical about this time and what is magical about this story and what is magical about this truth. Father, when you look back through the history of recorded human history, God, I, it's always been so easy that anything that we can't explain, it's easy to just kind of look at it as something magical, something uh, impossible to get, impossible to grasp. And yet as we celebrate, we're celebrating the impossible. We're celebrating the fact that you have come, that you have come. God, we are waiting, so often waiting for salvation, for redemption in our individual stories. And there are times when you give us uh, pieces of that and you give us foreshadowing of that. And yet there are times that, God, I know for many of us here, there are areas in our life that we're still waiting. There are certain areas that we are not seeing. Certain things happen the way we're hoping and the way we've been praying. So God, I pray that you would meet us there. That we are still able to engage in what is magical about you coming in. The fact that you are always on the move and that you were always pursuing and that you are not done. And I pray that this holiday season, this Christmas, we would truly be able to say that this Christmas is truly about your story and not our own. And then help us find our place in that. Lord, help us not to be on the thrones of our own hearts. I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself as not only our Savior, not only our friend, not only our King, God, but our Lord. And I pray that now in Jesus' name.